Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we look at the future of learning here. I am Jeff Young, a reporter and editor at Ed Surge. Once upon a time, there was a small college in New Hampshire that taught a couple thousand undergrads on its campus. It was a pretty typical New England college, but it was also on shaky financial footing. Today, this same college has one of the largest student populations in the country. It may be the largest, at more than 200,000 students. Thanks to its unusual expansion into online education over the past two decades. That college is Southern New Hampshire University. And throughout its dramatic growth, it's been led by the same president, Paul LeBlanc. LeBlanc was a first-generation college student himself. And over time, he has become a spokesperson for creating lower-cost options for students thanks to technology. That interest has also led him to focus on competency-based education, an approach where students are measured by what skills and knowledge they can demonstrate, rather than how many hours they've spent in a classroom. At one point, LeBlanc even took a small sabbatical from his job to advise the U.S. Education Department about competency-based learning. This month, LeBlanc announced that he will step down from the presidency of Southern New Hampshire after this academic year. But he is not done trying to shake up higher education. He plans to focus on a new effort at the university to explore how artificial intelligence might reshape college as we know it. I recently connected with Paul LeBlanc to talk about how the university made its unusually big move to online education, about how he responds to critics who worry that he has borrowed too much from the for-profit university sector, and about his plans for his new AI project. One name that popped up a few times in our conversation is Clayton Christensen. You may have heard that name before. He was a longtime Harvard Business School professor with a popular theory called disruptive innovation which argues that big new ideas in business are often started by upstarts or by smaller players rather than the market leaders in any field. And as you'll see, this figures into the story of this small college becoming a bigger player. Okay, let's get to it. Here's the interview. I'm talking today with Paul LeBlanc, the outgoing president of Southern New Hampshire University. Thanks for joining us. It's always great to be with you, Jeff. I like to think I'm outgoing. (laughs) well you've been you know it's it's funny i saw somewhere that says like you know few university leaders are as associated with their institution as paul leblanc and there is something to be said for that i mean you've been at southern new hampshire for 20 plus years um and when you got there and i've i've gotten to visit the campus it's 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 lovely um and you know when you when i when you started it had around 2,000 students on a beautiful, you know, leafy campus with a, 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 you know, and that campus is still there and thriving with its on-campus presence. But now with online, you have turned the place into a mega university online with um, literally 200,000 students. Is that, is that right? 225,000, actually, because we just hit that number. Yeah. 225,000 students. I mean, it's like, on, you know, like people, people have visited these big 10 schools with like, you know, Ohio State with like these stadiums that have like, you know, oh my gosh, there's like 60, 70,000 students in person. But this is not in person. It's a totally different thing as, as people that know your university online know and online education. But at the same time, like you are serving, like, it's just like a different scale, like a whole different game. Um, and so I guess I'm curious, like, just to very quickly, it's, you know, go over how that origin story happened. Um, because I hear when you got to Southern New Hampshire, it's not like you invented online. There was some online teaching going on even then. But um, what what made you want to grow this area or what, as a president, what what led you to do that? And what was it like in those early days? Sure. And, you know, and I came to SNHU with a background in technology and education. So looking to online was a play. I was in that space anyway. I had, I've been at Marlboro College while I was there in this little unknown college in southern, the southern hills of Vermont. We did the first internet e-commerce degree program. We did the first internet and teaching program. That's what we called it. It's kind of funny to think about it. I was an MAT program. Um, so I've been, you know, working in that space and I've been at Houghton Mifflin and working in kind of early days of, of what was called new media at the time. 
I remember those days, actually. I've been around long enough to know. Yeah, new media. Yeah, it was, it was before. Yeah, the internet was was new, newer as a. As no, a it, was, it was brand new. We were talking about, I was there in 93 to 96, and we were talking about what is this thing called the web, you know? And we were using browsers like Mosaic. I mean, so we sound like ancient people when we talk about this stuff, but it really was kind of this. It was a fun time. It was a sense of a new possibilities. And, you know, my doctoral research actually is on this question. It was looking at, what happens when new paradigm shifting technologies change the noetic economies of our society, literally how a society thinks differently. And it certainly has, right? I mean, if you take a look at then it was PCs and networks, right? But like it was changing everything and I knew it was changing everything. I wanted to write about it. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to this in this conversation, but, uh, what I will do next is sort of a full circle return as we look at another paradigm changing, I would say transforming technology. But let me go. Oh, I'm going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah, great. Yeah. Let me, let me go to your question. So in 2003, I come, you know, I teach a program, I teach often, sometimes in a program that Drew McLaughlin runs at Harvard. It's very famous. It's the, pre- it's the workshop for new presidents. And I always say, when you arrive as a president, you are externally, its biggest cheerleader. You are telling that tale with enthusiasm and energy, but internally, you have to be a hard-nosed uh, analyst. You have to think about, I often say it's a little bit like being dealt into a high-stakes poker game. You get to look at the cards you've been dealt. Like, you took this job. What are the cards you have in your hand? And when I looked at SNHU, you know, the, I thought, God, there's a card here that they're playing, but they're not playing it very much. And it's online learning. And we're one of the few places locally that's doing it. It wasn't very big. You know, we got dragged into online against our will. SNHU had these um, satellite sites on Navy bases. We were a preferred provider, quote unquote, for the Navy. And yet that was a pretty typical model for serving uh, members of the military back then. They would be like literally satellites, right? You'd yeah, beam on video. campus, like literally. I mean, on base. Excuse me. So we were on the on Roosevelt base, Roads right? Naval yeah. Air, you know, Naval Base. We were up in the Brunswick Naval Air Station, Maine, on base. Uh, and you would have adjunct faculty who would drive to the base and get, you know, they get their pass and they'd go in and they teach classes. But we were doing this for the Navy, and the Navy said rightly, every time we put a ship out to sea, all of those sailors are college dropouts. They don't go to class the next day. And there's this new distance education thing. And if you want to keep your preferred provider status, you have to start offering that. They dragged us into online. Thank God in 1995, early. So by, you know, I got here in 2003 and there was this, you know, 18 people, few hundred students. We have about 2,500 students all total, but the campus, the traditional campus dominated that number. But I thought this card, like I could see the writing on the wall. We could see the for profits were growing like crazy. And, you know, when, when you could offer fully virtual degrees, most of not-for-profit higher ed look down their nose at it. Oh, this isn't as good. Nature abhors a vacuum. The Phoenixes, Corinthians, ATTs, they all went in. And if you remember, Jeff, at their height, they educated 12% of all American college students. Right. The University of Phoenix was a mega university. Big Five, yeah. 500,000 students at their height. That's right. They, they eclipsed what you're doing, yeah. But I thought, this is a card we can play. You know, what were my other cards? We were relatively unknown, very local. Um, you know, the, you know, I don't know what the right way to sort of rank a school, but a lot of people have said we were a third tier, if there are four tiers. But I'll, we'll say this. There were two things that I was really fortunate. You could even argue three. The first was there was something to work with. Like, we were still, we had a program. People were working really hard. And there were some really talented people in that early online operation, that early team. Second is... This place had always been built on serving non-traditional students. Its actual DNA was a non-traditional students when it was founded. So we did the reverse. You know, most campuses that came to adult learners did it with, we have a campus. And then at some point back in the 60s, we decided we're going to do some continuing education evening programs and maybe some exec ed. And then maybe they got into online. We did the opposite. We started with non-traditional students in a storefront, second floor, you know, on Hanover Street in Manchester in 1932. And it was only in 68 that we got a campus. It was only in the 70s that we started recruiting traditional age students onto a campus. So we, it was always in our DNA. And that, so that's hard. Like, that's not a shift that a lot of places make easily. We, 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 we had already done it. And then the third was everyone was hungry. Like, they wanted change. They wanted to be better. They wanted to have more impact. And, you know, I, we were lucky. We didn't have a lot of money. And we didn't have a lot of, you know, status. Lucky, and lucky yeah. not to have money. How's that lucky? Because the two biggest impediments to innovation are a lot of money and a lot of status. Like, I, you know, Larry Bacow was a good friend. He was the president of Harvard. I was like, Larry, it's so hard for you guys to innovate. Like, how do you change Harvard? 
Because you don't want to tarnish that that name with something that's not up to standards. Is that it? Exactly. And there's not a lot of urgency. Like if you have all that kind of wealth, like why change, right? Things working pretty well for you. So, you know, look, and they do things we could never do. So that's not a criticism. It's just a different, it's a different place to be. But when I came here during the search process, everyone said, we want to get to the next level. Now look at the way I came to answer that question might not be the way they were all imagining. I don't want to pretend that there was uniformity, but we set out to build it. And one of the, you know, I was lucky Clay Christensen was a dear friend of four decades. He was on my board. And I started talking to Clay about how do we do this? You know, the first thing we did is we took that online division, we moved it away. We put it down in the Milliards of Manchester, two miles away. And I said, look, at, I'm giving you permission to play by different rules. Like, you've got to be built. And here's the thing. You know, we didn't say this at first. So I don't want to pretend it at first. But when we started to get it right, and we had a lot of work to do. It's not sexy. It was under the hood. It was changing our business rules. It was changing our technology. It was changing the way we were doing courses. It was a lot of work to do. We had to negotiate with our traditional faculty who really controlled what we could do and not do and kind of get a little bit of breathing space to do what we wanted to do. But um, but at some point, the challenge I put on the team is how do we compete against Phoenix? We don't want to be like them. We want to learn about the good things they do. And people forget early University of Phoenix did some things really well that incumbent higher ed didn't. So let's study those. Like Like what? Like give me one example. They said, hey, you know what? You shouldn't have to put adult learners through a million administrative hoops to become a college student, right? Like we just had – think about the hoops that we put people through, the paperwork. You know, I'm working all day long. I'm I'm in a dead-end job. I get home at 5 o'clock, and you tell me I have to call the bursar. Like what is the bursar again? And I have to get an official transcript from a registrar. By the way, I got home at 5.15. That office had been closed for an hour. Like they just did things like, oh, we'll chase down your transcripts. They took the grit out of the, like, I know we can't use this phrase still. We don't even use it at SNHU, but they had a thought about customer service. Like, you don't have to treat your students crappy just because they're students. Like, you could do things better for them, right? And, and you know, they got really focused on what does an adult learner need that's different than a traditional learner? And they didn't use this phrase back then, but they were doing Clay's jobs to be done theory, which is really dig in and understand what a particular use, a consumer, a student in this case, wants from you? What are they buying from you when they write a check, give you their hard-earned money? And, you know, for traditional students, they want, obviously, an education that gives them a career, but they also want a coming-of-age experience. They want to live on campus. They want to fall in love. They want to get away from home. They want to get away from home. They want to figure out who they are. They want to stay up at two in the morning and talk about the meaning of life. They want to drink too much on Thursday and learning can't drink too much. They want to study abroad. They want to join a club. They want to, you know, join a team. My 35-year-old who did like two tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, who's got three kids and a dead-end job, he's had all the coming of age he can handle. Like, he doesn't need that. He needs convenience. He needs affordability. He needs a credential that unlocks an opportunity for to take better care of his family. He needs it in a super convenient way. That's why we're dedicated to asynchronous, for example. like Asynchronous meaning it's not like we have to show up together. Like, right now, we are synchronously together at the same time. Um, but the asynchronous is on demand, like watching a Netflix show. Whenever yeah, you know, and I wrote my book in 2021 during the pandemic called Students First. And really the revelation is something I just hadn't thought with this level of clarity. But time is a privilege. The ability to take two or four years out of your life to go to college is a privilege that a lot of low-income learners don't have. And certainly working adults don't have. They can't check out in that way. But even tying someone to a class schedule in a place, if you work in a job where you don't know what your schedule is next week, that's really tough. So we said, no, you become a student when it's convenient. If you're working till six and then you want to have dinner with your family and help your kids with their homework and put them to bed and at 930 you log on, that's when you're a student because that's what fits your life. That is more than anything drove online enrollment. Affordability was certainly important and everything else. But rather than forcing students to experience their education on our terms, giving them education on their terms, it fits their life. That is the seed of SMHU's growth story, to be honest with you. Um, it's a lot of other things that had to happen and <laughs> do be done well, of course. But but I do think that's fundamentally the story of adult learners. Um, so anyway, we, we, we started growing. The recession of 2009, 2010 hits hard. We were a little flat-footed. We were going to have an operating deficit for the first time in years. I went to the board. Everyone remembers this who was on my team. It was an aha. It was like, take a deep breath, guys. We're going to do this, right? We're looking. What, what year was this again? 
2010, the October board meeting. It's it, like, you know, all institutions have their lore. This stands, yes. this stands at the heart of our, our story, our myth. And we went to the board and said, we're looking at maybe a $3 million operating deficit. And that's tough. We were still pretty small. Um, and we want to spend $2 million to bring our programs into a more of a national market because we'd only marketed locally. And we don't know if it's going to work. We had some testing that was encouraging. We had hoped to do a whole year of marketing test. We didn't have a year. We had 10 weeks. But we said, it's encouraging. We want to take this bet. And I remember saying, I was like, if this doesn't work, the deficit's going to be deeper and we're all going to be looking for work. But um, but it worked. People were enrolling in places like Milwaukee and Oklahoma City, places that no one knew us. But we were running some ads and they worked. By January, it was going so well, we went back and said, we want $4 million more. We had never spent anything like that. That was three times more money than we had spent on marketing. And and people were- These involved. are four, I mean, because you're buying like TV ads and markets and it, it's expensive. Yeah. And, and we ended that year with an $11 million surplus. And we never looked back. We self-funded everything. We never had to dip into reserves. And that really was- the beginning of our growth. So in 2012, we were number 50 of the 50 largest nonprofit providers of online education. In 2015, three years later, we were number four. And Jeff, that was a meteoric ride. I mean, it was crazy. We were hiring 40 to 50 new full-time staff. Every Monday, we were onboarding 40 to 50 people. We had stacks of computers in the hallway. We had people sharing card tables because there was not enough desks. Couldn't order them fast enough. Um, we broke everything. We didn't know how to scale. Like we broke payroll, we broke IT, we broke everything, we broke HR. Um, and we've learned and students didn't suffer to like, we were like that duck metaphor. We were paddling furiously underneath the water and looking calm on top. Um, and, but we learned. And then we obviously that level of growth, that furious growth sort of moderated and we continued to grow. And then, um, when the pandemic hit was the second big, huge leap and we grew by 46,000 students in one year and 12 months and hire 1,600 more full-time staff to support them. Um, so now we're about 225,000 largest in the country. Um, Is it the largest in the country? Yeah, we were uh, WG and we were like neck and neck. We had more undergrads, we had more grad students. We're more undergraduate focused. Again, if you think, I mean, we didn't say this, but and, and your listeners may or may not know this about us, but we always like are steadfastly focused on the 45% of Americans who say they would struggle to come up with 400 bucks for an unexpected car repair or medical bill. Like that's who, that's who we love to serve. And we've never wavered. You know, I've been at schools and, and, and I have colleagues where the, the, the desire is to have ever stronger students, stronger quote unquote, like we got to get, we're going to move up the rankings. We never have played that game. Right. Like ever. you're looking, you're chasing this student who is doing well in the SAT and has got a million APs or whatever. So my favorite student was the guy that graduated last day, my favorite graduate who drove an 18 wheeler, he would drive his 14-hour shifts as a mandate on how much you can drive. He was from a very poor, low-income community in Mississippi. And he would park his truck as close as he could to a rest area with Wi-Fi so that he could, you know, sh- shut down, open up his laptop in the cab of his truck, log on, and at whatever hour, he was an SNHU student. And we must have yeah. a... Yeah, yeah. no, and it's a very different... And now he's a counselor. Now he's back. He's like, he's not driving a truck. He got his degree last week. He's a, he's a drug and a rehab counselor in the community where he works, making it a better place. Yeah. No, it is. um, It it is clearly, you know, and it's interesting that you're saying that from the get go, that was where Southern New Hampshire was was drawing students. That was the kind of, you know, kind of underlying DNA, because I have I think you're right. I think there there have been colleges that or they're trying to serve one population on campus and then try to do a whole different be a whole different thing online, which is very difficult to do, um, I imagine, or maybe a little more difficult to do. Anyway. It is more difficult, particularly if they don't do that kind of really thinking hard about the jobs to be done work. So what often happens is I observe anyway, maybe this is changing, but colleges take all the policies and the ways of serving students that they do with traditional students on campus and try to drop that into a virtual space. And it doesn't work. You know, that example I used of an administrative process, if you tell a student who's transferring in, hey, you know, you, you want to come here next semester, go to your registrar and get a registered, you know, get a certified transcript, it's going to cost you 10 bucks. They go back to their home campus and do that. Or, you know, if they're transferring from afar, they do that. It's easy and they'll just do it the next day. But my working student who's coming home at six o'clock, those offices are closed. They don't remember. So, you know, we would, and I got to remember early days, 
So we just said, you know, go on the website. You're looking at it. Click on this box. You've just given us permission. We will trace down your transcript and we'll pay the $10. And we had a guy who's still with us who used to go down and he would go to like post office to post office to post office. He got stacks of uh, postal orders for $10. And he, we would mail these to these schools with the application printed off. This terribly manual process. It's all digitized now. Um, but yeah, those are the things that made a real difference. And it seems like, well, how serious can they be if that's the thing that gets in their way? It's like, you don't understand the life of, of people who are working and have just so little time and so little, you know, again, when I was writing my book, I realized if you're a low income, if you're poor, everything takes longer. Like I have a washer dryer and I, I, I can go get a cup of coffee and throw a load of laundry. What happens if I have to go to laundromat to have clean clothes? What was I, if I don't have a car, groceries take longer. If I don't have a robust employer health insurance, medical care, everything takes longer. Um, so, so really paying attention to those things I thought were really, you know, really makes a difference. The other thing I would say, and the secret sauce in many ways for SNHU, and it cuts across all of our staff groups. They're incredible. They'll run through walls for students, but the relational central, the, the centrality of our advisors and the student relationship, that's, that's like critical because students go from course to course, faculty member to faculty member. Um, we, you know, have great experience with the faculty, but it's your academic advisor who stays with you through the whole journey. And I would say that my worry about our students is often not that they're not academically prepared. They may need to polish their writing skills and maybe they're poor writers and we need to, that's one of the things we have to do for them. It's actually the psychological, emotional sort of, you know, burden of, I, I tried college before and I wasn't ready for it. Or I was, I just never thought I'd go to college or someone once told me I wasn't college material and now I'm going to give it a try. Or I tried it and failed. Life got in the way. I had a kid. A million things can, can derail people. Right. Um, and, and it's often lonely. That's the one thing I would say about online learning is now you're at your dining room table at 10 o'clock at night by yourself. You're not, you're not surrounded by other people. So that relationship with someone who, who makes it clear that it matters that you're a student, that we care about you, that we know about you. They get to know your fat, about your family. They get to know about your work experience. I know we call them academic advisors, but in many ways, they're life coaches. And we, we did a, a podcast series, um, that, that I did a, a, it's been about a year and a half now where we, it's called Second Acts, where we, you know, kind of dug into the lives of three, um, adult students going to online programs. It wasn't at, it wasn't at your institution, but we did have, um, a student at a, a program with a similar model and, and really had that, that interaction. And yeah, it was really interesting to, to talk at length with these, these three students, um, trying to, yeah, just at home all alone, um, or with their families, like during the day, they have the kids they're raising in some cases. And then when everyone else is asleep, they're just starting up this pro student mode. So when someone's checking in on you, like, hey, Jeff, how was that exam last night? Hey, you said your kid was sick. Are they feeling better? Like that little stuff. So I wrote, I had no, no social life during the pandemic. So you, you may remember I wrote a second book called Broken. But the first chapter is called Mattering. Like you can't trans, I am convinced after talking to psychologists and sociologists like Greg Elliott Brown and Jessica Benjamin at NYU, who's a noted psychologist, like you can't transform a life if you're not in relationship with that person. Mm -hmm. um, think about who your great, most impactful mentors and teachers were. There were people who knew you. Like it wasn't my best teachers. They may or may not have been great at the front of the classroom, but it was the time outside of the classroom that they took to know who I was, to understand who I was, to mentor me, to give me counsel, to give me a kick in the pants when I needed it. Cause it meant they cared. Like the kick in the pants means someone's actually cares that you, that you do well. And I think, um, that's what our academic advisors and honestly, all our staff, like people talk about their do you admissions have those, counselors. You know, do you have those for the on campus students? Because this is one thing that, you know, I think the assumption, I think in the early days or the, the, the beef on online was like, well, you can't have these relationships online. Yeah. It's so um, funny because I think not only do I have better optics into, into sort of measures of quality, you know, like when a faculty member closes the door on a campus, that's pretty much all I get. You get to see till the midterm exams or, you know, end of this year evaluations. But we we're fanatic about data. We, we measure everything. We're monitoring classes, every section, 24 seven. We'll know when students have disappeared, when they're logging in. We know if those questions in the discussion board are going unanswered. In a non-creepy way, I hope. 
So you're, you're yeah, we're not, it's not like big brother. It's just like, Hey, how's that class going? How's that section is like, and they get really important optics. Like they say, you know, cause again, if you're running 500 sections of intro to psych, which is not untypical for us, given our size, uh, it's important to say, Hey, you know what the data is showing us is that really across the board in week seven, students are struggling. And then the academic team with that data insight can go in and start to look and say, Oh, you know, we need to sort of restructure this, like the scaffolding here isn't right, or the sequencing isn't working, or this reading is off. So we get amazing insights into quality. But the other thing, it's, it's what surprises people, is that at our scale, students can feel so personally cared for. And that's the trick. If I, you know, and so it's like, what are you most proud of in the 20 years? It's like, we've been able to impact a lot of lives in very powerful ways. We'll have 44,000 graduates this year. We have packed a lot of lives, changed the trajectory of those families, um, but in a way where students feel like I genuinely mattered to this place. I was well cared for. So it's it's the trick, right? It's the magic is how do you make someone feel like they're having a highly personalized experience and that they're not lost in a sea of 225,000 students? No, I, yeah, I, I totally, yeah, I totally hear you. And I, I do I think that's an interesting thing that is probably surprising to people about the model and this this role that you've created and other online programs are doing too of this coach that is persistent, a, a persistent presence in the student's journey. But it's got to be backed up in every interaction. So they got to feel that when they're dealing with a financial aid issue. They have to feel that when they're dealing with, you know, an a, a, a academic complaint or something, an ombudsman complaint. It, it permeates the culture. And I think that's the other thing I'm most proud of. It's just like, it's this place will not change with my handing off the baton. Like sure. it's, it's best work is ahead of it, right? Because we've built such a strong culture and a mission focus. So I, I do have to ask, you know, I, I can't hold myself. The, the Inside Higher Ed article reminded me that you've, you've definitely had people ask questions about the model too with, you know, such a big population and so many students and making in, you know, revenue from these online students. If you'll uh, humor me, I'm going to play this clip from a Senate hearing. Oh, God, that, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Elizabeth Warren, who people know, is asking a lot of questions, continuing it, about you know, the, the way, um, online universities of all types serve students, um, or in some cases, maybe she's worried they don't. Um, she had a question for you, um, uh, on this, this, um, Senate health education, labor and pensions committee, um, back in 2010, I think I'm going to roll this clip just for a, a minute. Bear with me here. But I wanted to ask you a question, Dr. LeBlanc. I understand that over the last 10 years, Southern New Hampshire University has been engaged in another very innovative project with the online university presence. Uh, and it, as I understand it, because you haven't been shy about this business model that you've done, that the presence has produced uh, about, according to Bloomberg, in 2011, a 41% profit margin. That is, if I understand this correctly, the revenues from the students online exceeded the costs of providing that, according to Bloomberg at least, by about 41%. And uh, then in 2013, they estimate it's about a 22% uh, uh, profit mm -hmm. from this. And, you know, th those are pretty impressive numbers. Those are numbers that sure. would make Goldman Sachs envious. <laughs> So the question I have about this is that practices like online education that drastically lower the costs of providing educational services by standardizing the curricula and making it accessible because you use adjunct faculty, making it accessible more cheaply, um, the question is, are those savings being passed along to the students? So if you're getting a 41% profit margin, it sounds like the lower costs of an online education are not being passed on to yeah, those so students. Let me, Can you explain that? Let me first correct the record because and there's no reason you would have looked at my campus blog, but we took pains to correct John's uh, inaccuracies in describing it. So the margins for the online portion only of our institution run in the 20 percentile range. So that part is accurate. So I, I, I know you had an answer in the moment and we could I'll point people to the full testimony, um, which of course these things go on. Um, I know there was some qu questioning about the, the profit margin and what it exactly was. Um, and you can maybe remind us what the right number was. But but this idea of like, you know, universities typically do this too, where they'll take money from one program and put it into another. But 
baked into the, I mean, the, the heart of the question is really like, if you're saving so much money offering this education so much more cheaply than in person, um, are you, you know, are you really passing as much of it as you can onto the students? Are, are you using a lot of it to do other things that may not benefit those students? Um, yeah. So it's both, right? So students have benefited greatly from our ability to be really efficient. So we went 10 years with no tuition increase, and we were already one of the most affordable online degrees in the market. So if you take a look at kind of where our prices are versus other options available to students, we remained one of the most affordable degrees possible. You could go from zero credits to a full bachelor's degree for $40,000. And that's if you had zero credits, and most students do come with credits. Second thing is, it's the level of services. So by the way, the, the surplus target that we always set for ourselves is between six and eight percent. So that number was wildly inaccurate. We've had a couple of years where we exceeded it. Um, that's because, you know, a surge in enrollment, for example, like those scaling years, but, um, or we're, you know, not in a year in which we're not making certain kinds of investments in technology. But what we've been able to do because of our growth is outgrow expenses, get more and more efficient and then reinvest. So. Things like College for America, our, our CB, our competency-based program, which we marketed for, I think, $6,000 a year, close to what WGU um, markets, right? Um, the work we do with refugee learners, uh, that's wholly subsidized by the university, by our out of our surpluses. So it's true. We cross-subsidize all the time. By the way, Elizabeth Warren came out of Harvard, where her department, her program was cross-subsidized by the business school, as, as we know, right? So cross-subsidies are very, very common. Um, and that was a little bit of grandstanding. But, but I think if you take a look at what is the impact, if you take a look at what is the experience of any given SNHU student, have we, you know, kept, have we kept the price down? Have we reinvested in programs? And I'll give you a couple of examples. During the pandemic, given who we serve, our students were um, inordinately um, affected by the pandemic. We have front, we are, our students are the frontline workers that don't, didn't get to go home and work from their bedroom or their study, right? Um, and we saw a drop in persistence, right? They just had less time, their lives were in upheaval. So I went to the board and I said, look at, we already have a below industry standard, a ratio, excuse me, for advisors to students. I want to drop it by a lot. It's going to take $22 million a year out of our surplus. Um, there was no question. They had, the question was, is it enough? And, you know, we dropped our ratios down to below 200 students per advisor. Some community colleges, by the way, are 1,600 students per advisor. So when you take a look at where we invest, how we invest, what we do with those surpluses, we have certainly wanted to build our cash and reserves. It's the kind of thing that, you know, everyone does, right? You try and ensure your long-term fiscal health as a not-for-profit. But we've made massive investments back in students. And I can say in 20 years, I have never once brought something before the board of that nature where they have balked or questioned or resisted. It's just, and that's, you know, sometimes someone, someone asks me, is there a real difference between being a not-for-profit and a for-profit? Like, I was just about to ask you that. Yeah. So what is, how would you describe, because you mentioned Phoenix earlier and you admitted that, or, you know, you're noting that you borrowed some techniques from for-profit sector, which has, you know, how would, how would you describe, like, what's the key difference then between your mega university and one of these big? Yeah, it's funny, guys. It's not, it's a funny phrase. Like, when I think of a mega anything, it means it dominates its industry. And at 225,000 students out of 20 million, we're hardly a mega university. But I know it's a question of comparison. But the term aside, here's what I would say is different about what we do, Jeff, which is, and if you look back at the history of Phoenix, I think the critical point when things went south for them is when they went public. And when they went public, why does anyone invest? Why does shareholders, why does the market invest in you? They're betting on growth. They're betting that you, right? And they had huge growth, like rapid, big, two, you know, double digit growth. And they got very, very large. But at some point, those percentages are really hard to maintain because you're working off a really big base. So you may remember that originally they wouldn't take anyone who was under the age of 21 mm. uh, because they said, no, we're about adults. Like there's other places. They dropped that because they couldn't meet the, the expectations of the street. And then, um, then they get into nefarious recruitment practices. Why? Because the pressure, the beating you take on those quarterly reports to the street are brutal. It's, you know, it's part of the problem of, of the rationality of the market. Um, so they couldn't maintain those expectations any longer. 
We've never had gross demands of any kind. We have no shareholders. Like no one gets enriched by our performing better or worse, right? Like the, the trustees are the owners, quote unquote, of the university. They don't benefit in any way. So you ask different questions, right? You're not focused on like, they want to know that we're good stewards. They want to know that, you know, that six to 8% margin target is an important one because it allows us to invest, allows us to build reserves and an endowment over time. Um, but, but there's no pressure that say, takes you down the sort of kind of paths that many of the for-profits took. Um, yeah. So I think that I mean, it is, I think, you know, I, I have lots of good friends who work in for-profit industries around higher ed and the ed tech sector. And we had had these debates a lot and I, and I really wrestled with it, but I'm pretty firm now in my conviction that it really does make a big difference. And, and how did that feel? And I correct my, I was wrong about the date. It was 2013. Um, so I'm sure you remember, but what was it like this moment of, um, a lot of the questions were super friendly, but when Elizabeth Warren, you know, comes up and, and it's pretty tough on, on, on this, yeah, you know, pretty skeptical. skeptical. Yeah. And she's like, like, a, <laughs> I think, um, it was funny that, so there are two times I testified and both times she did this. And second time she sort of waltzed in and grandstanded at is she made her comments. She asked a bunch of questions. She left before I had a chance to answer them. And if you remember Lamar Alexander was chairing the committee at the time. And I said, Mr. Chairman, um, I know that the Senator is no longer here. Um, but may I at least respond to the things she was saying, you know, and there was a little bit of, he, he kind of smirked like, have at it. <laughs> and I have huge respect for Elizabeth Warren. I think, you know, from a policy perspective and our politics aligned. And I was hosting uh, a group of Hill staffers, including one of hers. And I said, could you talk to your boss and tell her we're on the same side? Like, does she know who we educate? Does she know what our numbers look like? The percentage of our Pell Grant students, you know, um, we're trying to do good work. But I think part of this is Folks, and I, sh I would, at the time, and I suspect her own thinking has probably evolved, I don't know. But at the time, people really did think that online learning was somehow inferior, you know? And it's funny, I was just saying this recently, that, you know, we used to talk about digital media and digital marketing. Now we just talk about media, we just talk about marketing. I wonder how long, much longer we're going to talk about digital education. It's just education. I mean, we're melding and hybrid forms, and students are, you know... Look at the numbers. You know, we, it's interesting. You know, I, I always use the example of the 35 year old who's a veteran and has two kids. We've got 35,000 traditional age students enroll with us now. There's a generation of traditional age learners who are saying, no, nah, online works for me. And I don't think they think about it as online. I just think they do it. You no, know, like they don't, yeah. you and I are of an age where we might say, Hey, I'm going to go online and do a thing. When are they ever offline? Right. Their devices are always in their hand. And that, yeah, even your yeah, even your example of having you know like a a call with some advisor or something like in the mix of, of things. So I want to make sure we get a little bit of time to talk about AI because my understanding is that you are you know you're leaving your post uh, in June I believe, um, but you already have some thoughts about what's next. Could you tell us what your kind of yeah, next? Yeah, you know the we was some with some of the great little team. Um, when I say a little bit, like small and mighty George Siemens, who I think most people know, he's probably I've had him on the podcast before. We've we've heard him here. George is probably among the five, the world's five foremost experts on AI and education. So I persuaded him to leave his post and join us as chief scientist and in this little team that we put together. And we have a group working on wellness and well-being, led by clinical psychologist Tanya Gambi. And so we've assembled maybe I think it's six people now. And what we're looking at is this question. We were very much influenced by the book Power and Prediction. It's written by three economists out of the University of Toronto. And they said, look at the power of AI will get unleashed in universities and organizations, excuse me, uh, as point solutions. And I see that at SNHU almost overnight. Marketing was using it. You know, instructional design was using it. Everyone, was, HR was using it. Like everyone is using AI as many of us are now. But what they argue in that book is that the real full power of AI gets unleashed when you take a clean sheet of paper system redesign top to bottom. So that's the job we've set out for ourselves. What would a top to bottom redesign of education look like if we weren't trying to fit it into the existing models, if we weren't trying to fit it into the existing systems? And what we're really working on is what would a human centered, a relationally centered version of education look like if it could be empower, empowered by and supported by AI. So our idea is what does human-centered AI look like when we talk about learning? 
What are the relationships, the human relationships that we want to preserve in a world where human beings are no longer the most powerful entities when it comes to, comes to declarative knowledge? Um, AI hallucinations aside, we're losing that race pretty quickly. Um, and if you've been following kind of the advances, I guess we all are, but, you know, look at things like protein folding, you know, that by deep mind, amazing article in science magazine. I mean, it's revolutionary stuff and we just can't equal it. Yeah. And it's it obviously, and then on a more prosaic thing, you know, these, these, these consumer level chatbots are starting to be able to, you know, ace the SAT or, or whatever, pass these graduate boards. And it's happening so fast, Jeff. It's like, it's just racing. It's hard to keep up with that, with the advances. Every week is another set of advances, right? So what is, what does it mean to educate? And I, you know, we have some bets. You know, I think what, you know, we would argue, George would argue and has argued at conferences that we will now see a shift where, forever edu higher education was about what what do you know like fill in the blank what do you need to know to be a an accent accountant a lawyer a doctor and and now um it's less about what do you know and more far more what can you do with what you know and and who are you what is your role in the world how are you as a human being soft skills human skills because knowledge skills we're not we're not going to be the top dog anymore right so you move you shift the balance Higher education today is all about epistemology and, uh, and, and sort of, you know, questions of being are a sort of secondary question. And we wonder now if that's going to shift. I think it's going to fuel the move towards competency-based education. So again, if it's a really question about what can you do with what you know, that's a, that's a competency and skills question. So I think we're going to change assessment. I mean, assessment's already out of date. I would argue, I know it's a little provocative, I think all curricula are, are now out of date. Wow. Like if you are, if you're a university and you're not thinking really, really hard about what do the students in this major now need to know to be effective in the world, to be competitive in the workforce? What AI tools do they need to know? How is their work environment going to change? How do we teach differently? How do you think about writing, for example? I mean, I think writing as an assessment tool, so common. I was a writing teacher and I had this debate with some writing faculty recently where you know, they were like, we have to prohibit ChatGPT. And I said, you're going to prohibit the very tool that's going to get your graduates a job. Like the thing that you don't want them to use is the thing that employers want them to use. I said, if I were teaching writing still, going way back, if I were teaching today, I would encourage them. I would insist they use it. But yeah. I would, what I would say is give me your assignment, your completed assignment. And I want three things attached. I want to see the prompts you wrote to produce this writing. I want to see and understand what you did to improve it. How did you put it in your own voice? How did you adjust it to the situation, et cetera? Because it's going to give you a generic kind of response. And the third thing I want to see is I want to know how you know any of the factual information is true. What did you do? How did you confirm? And, and if you think about those three things, you're actually raising the cognitive bar. The bar has gotten higher because low-level and middle-level knowledge work, that's gone. Summary is not enough. Is this Summer is not enough. And I think, you know, I'm in the, I'm, the, I'm like, look at, there are people who vehemently disagree with me, but I am in the camp that thinks we will see whole swaths of the workforce displaced. That's scary. Knowledge economy. It's very scary. We have to get ahead of this. Now, here's what I argue. And I argued this in my book, Broken in 22, which is that we have a need, a massive need for human jobs. We need to flood our schools with great teachers and counselors and social workers and coaches. AI won't do those things. We need to rebuild a mental health care system that is just shot. It's obliterated in this country, right? That's Those are human jobs. We have to um, create a system of geriatric care in an aging society. We don't have it. It's really anyone who's got an aging parent knows it's a disaster, right? Those are human jobs. Problem is, in our current work economy, in our current society, we don't value those jobs and we don't like to pay for those jobs. And I think that's going to shift dramatically. And look, at we know this historically. Whenever you've had something like this, like, this is akin to electricity, fire, and the industrial age. Like, it's going to be that massive a change in our world, I would argue. We know that there's going to be an ugly in-between period and where everything shifts. And I think we're going to see massive shifts in workforce. And universities are going to have to change because that's what we do. We produce people for a knowledge economy. And so the the thing, the project you're working on is at Southern Hampshire, Southern New Hampshire for transforming your university online and in person? Is that... You know, we've, we've, again, classic Clay Christensen, we've kept it at great arm's length. So the team and I yeah. will work away from SNHU. 
We would hope that if we, what we build is something SNHU can deploy first and early, great. But that wasn't a requirement. It was like, just go answer the question. What does the future of learning look like in an AI world where we want to make sure humans aren't displaced? What kind of output do you think you'll have? Is it like a white paper or tools? We think we'll have research tools. Um, we hope um, by the time ASU plus JSV Summit comes along in April, we'll be able to kind of unveil what we're building. We're working on a learning platform. Um, we have a really interesting and important project. It's separate. This is not, that was not what we were asked to do, but George and I recognize that higher ed is terrible at owning its own data. Even within institutions, we're terrible at data. And if we, as an industry, as a sector, don't get a better handle on our data, we will be reacting to other people's AI apps and approaches to us. So we're setting out to build a global data consortium and we've got some support from foundations. We've got, uh, I think I can say this is not officially up, but ACE has agreed to be the kind of uh, neutral referee host of it. And we've got a number of major scale players who said, look at the devil's in the details. So we're working on the architecture and the governance. But if you can build this, we will make data available. And we're going to have to have enormous safeguards around student privacy data, right? Huge issues. So I don't want to minimize those. But our hope is that, that we can build a massive data consortium so that higher education, its researchers, its policymakers, the people who want to build learning applications will have much richer data that that really sort of combats algorithmic bias, that really understands learning better. We want it, we should own this as an industry. So we're hoping to launch this data consortium in April and to be able to announce it. But right now I will tell you, Jeff, that if we were to announce it today and everyone who put their hand up to say we're in stayed in, we would have 25 million students represented in that data consortium. And that's just, you know, those are just the, the players that I've been, I spent a lot of my time on phone calls with providers around the globe. And we want to do it globally, right? We want to make sure that we're getting cult. We don't want cultural bias. We don't want, you know, racial and ethnic bias. And we're talking about student data in learning moments, right? Or is it? Yeah, yeah and, and, a learning moment. But demographic, you know, we want to link learning to them. Like, what can we know about you? So it's the paradox of AI. The bigger the sample size, right? we always say an N of all to get to a true N of one. Like, how do we build learning that understands Jeff Young as absolutely individual in his complexity, in the ways that he best learns, in the ways that sort of best support him. It's a, it's a fascinating challenge. And look at George is the expert on this. This is the guy you want to talk to about how do you build the data models, but we're in the middle of doing that work now. Does the, you, did the universities even own this data or are they sometimes working with companies that actually combination combination and yeah, and I think, you know, what part of the thing I worry about on the policy side is, you know, what if there's anything I learned from my sabbatical at the Department of Ed when I worked for Ted Mitchell, I learned only because I really was a policy neophyte, still am in many ways. But what I think I learned most importantly is that the best policy follows practice. It doesn't try to predict it. When you try to predict a policy, you make bad policy decisions. So what we're hoping is that we can build good research insights so we can say to policymakers, look at here are the things you need to think about when you think about protecting students. And I think the other thing that's really important here, and to your point about other people learning data, we feel like one of the three legs of the stool that we're trying to build is students need to own their data, control their data, understand how their data is being used, and actively consent. Like those are like just bedrock principles. And I think that's what protects us in an age of AI and big data. Like if we could say that about everything, (laughs) all of us, because our data is being collected relentlessly all the time. Um, Yeah. So it's an interesting challenge. It's, it's so much fun. I can't tell you how much I'm learning. If if you have one more, one more minute, I would love to hear a scenario. So like, what can AI do with this data once a data warehouse exists? Like what is a, what is a use case that would, because I'm having a little trouble picturing it, even though it sounds Sounds very interesting. Yeah. Well, I think from, so George would be better at this because he talks about how the more data we have, and you know, this is just like a general principle of AI, the smarter and better your learning models will be. You have greater insight and you start to ask questions and get insights 
that you don't even, they're not even predicting. This is one of the interesting things happening with AI. So what can we learn when we actually have our arms around student data in a way that's, that's impossible even in individual institutions like at SNHU and we are data fanatics. As I said earlier, we struggle to get comprehensive views of our students and really understand them. So we're hoping that we'll get greater insights and we'll be able to improve learning and support learning more effectively. The way that should be felt though as a student is that and we often use this example, if we can get it right, it will feel like you're sitting across from the best teacher you ever had. When you're in a... When you're in this engagement with a learning platform, right? Okay, so okay. that... Mm -hmm. With what it's presenting you as a, a video or chatbot, what is it? What does it look like? Yeah. So, well, we don't know. We haven't built it yet, right? So we're building, we're in the data architecture phase of this. But imagine that, like, you know, if every... So the ability... It might be dialogic. And if you played with, you know, the dialogic agents are becoming hot, a hot commodity. If you play with dot or pi, there are a number of them already, right? So now I'm in a conversation, whether it's textual or whether it's speaking. I mean, that's happening fast now. So the system says, Hey, Jeff, do you want to go back to what we were working on when you were last on? Well, you say, yeah, I want to go back to that marketing module. It's like, okay, we're, uh, we were up to the questions of product market fit. Jeff, walk me through it. And the system is smart enough to track whether how on top of it you are like, yeah, he understands. Like, oh, he's struggling with this concept. So the system, I'm just making this up on the fly here. Mike say to you, Hey Jeff, um, here are three things that explain this. One's a video takes about five minutes to watch. Here's a quick read. It's about four minutes and here's a blah, blah, blah. If you, every time you have a choice, choose video, the system should be smart enough to know that Jeff is a visual learner who that's his preferred learning mode. That's his preferred form of content. It doesn't mean you wouldn't always have the choices, but it would start to shift your learning environment because it's learning about you as a learner. Um, we're working with various, you know, wellness device companies to talk about how can we integrate wellness and sleep? Like what if we've logged on at nine 30 at night and the system could say, Hey Jeff, as you know, you've had three nights in a row of bad sleep. Are you sure you want to start that stats homework right now? Or would it be better to call it a night and maybe tackle it in the morning? Now, you might say, I don't need the Manny State AI thing here. Like, I, I, I think some people will have that reaction. Yeah. Completely. Like, you know, like when my Apple watch tells me to stand up, it's like, screw you. I'm not standing up. Who or you, or you took it off for a while. You, and it doesn't know you. And, or it's, it didn't realize you actually did go for a swim or something. I'm, I'm on an airplane. I'm not standing up. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I you know, like it's this is the fun, right? The fun is we don't know. And it's really fun to play with the possibilities here. But we will have a better sense of things. I think, you know, we hope by late spring to start to be able to be able to answer your questions with more, uh, in more concrete and detailed ways. But it really, um, you know, after running a very, very large or still running a very large organization of over 200,000 students, it's fun to be kind of in learning mode again and to be back in startup mode again. And you'll see. Sounds good. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that in a few months. So, well, thank you so much. This is a great place to end it. Appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. It was great talking to you. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, you can give us a gift this holiday season by leaving a rating, or better yet, a review, on whatever app you are listening to this show on right now. It just takes a minute, and it will help others find our podcast. And you should follow the EdSurge podcast on our weekly newsletter, which includes show notes with links to books or other resources that we mentioned in the show. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter or X at J.R. Young or online at JeffYoung.net. Music this episode by Komaku and editing by Rebecca Koenig. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening and happy holidays.